Let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambodhasa. This morning I introduced the reflection on the non-beauty of the body, the asuba bhavana, and as you know, this reflection is one of the four protective meditations and as such it can extend uh, some protection, guard, for certain things. And as I explained this morning, this reflection on the non-beauty of the body can protect the mind from attachment, attachment to the body one's own body, the body of another, also protect from desire, craving, lust for the body. So in this talk tonight, I will talk about how we can deal with attachment and desire. How we can deal with attachment and desire in regard to the body but also more generally how to deal whenever attachment and desire is present. <clears throat> the Dalai Lama often begins his talks with the sentence everybody wants happiness, nobody wants suffering. Isn't it so? And so with, this, with these words, he makes an immediate connection with his audience, whether that be dozens of people, hundreds, thousands, ten thousands of people. Everybody feels directly addressed and thinks, wow, the Dalai Lama knows me. <laughs> <clears throat> so happiness or satisfaction fulfillment, contentment. What do we normally do in order to be happy, in order to be satisfied, in order to be contented? Very often it is through the gratification of the senses, which means we listen to nice music, for example, or we drink a cup of tea or coffee or we meet with a dear friend or we go for a walk out in the bush or uh, on the beach or to be happy we go outside, sit in the sun and look at the birds, at the tree, at the clouds or other people they read inspiring poetry or else one could indulge in a fantasy or going out to the movies, going out to a nightclub, a disco and so on. So in order to be happy or feel satisfied this process of gratifying our every desire has become, for most of the people, a habitual response. It's become like a default setting. And almost everybody on this planet is functioning in this way. People fall constantly prey to the uncountable temptations lingering at the side of the path. When we were young, 
nobody showed us another way of dealing with desire, dealing with wanting. We simply imitated our parents or our friends and so then we picked up this pattern of behavior. So in general, the gratification of the senses is provided by either certain external conditions and circumstances or it is provided by internal conditions, you know, such as altered states of mind, which can be brought about through drinking alcohol or taking drugs. So ordinary people, and the Buddha called them the uninstructed worldlings, so ordinary people do not see the danger lying in this way of gratification. People only see the immediate happiness, the joy it brings, that it brings by gratifying their desires. But the Buddha uh, pointed out the danger in gratifying all sense desires. He had said, The Blessed One has stated how sensual pleasures provide little gratification, much suffering and much despair, and how great the danger is in them. For many people this might be difficult to hear and understand. You know, they may ask themselves, how can looking at the beautiful scenery lead to suffering? How could that be dangerous? Where is the danger in it? Or on top of that, then people believe that they can look at the beautiful scenery without desire, without attachment. So they are sure when they do it, that there is no attachment involved. And so they think in their case, this does not lead to suffering (coughs) and misery. But the Buddha uh, had said that that one can engage in sensual pleasures without sensual desires, without thoughts, of sensual desire, that is impossible. So this is a very clear statement by the Buddha, a statement that might bring up uneasiness because we we might have thought that we can engage in sensual pleasures without the desire or attachment. And so this statement gives us a very good opportunity to look closely at desire, to see whether or not what the Buddha had said is actually true. So when desire or craving, attachment is present, How does that actually feel like? What is the immediate and direct experience when attachment, desire is present? So what we can notice when we mindfully look at that desire, mindfully observe when desire is present, so we can notice how the mind firmly sticks with the object. And a traditional simile for this is it's like a piece of meat sticking to a hot iron pan. Because it seems like at the time of the Buddha they didn't have the Teflon pans. (laughs) 
a friend of mine who lives here in Australia. He had been meditating in Sri Lanka and at that time this Sri Lankan meditation teacher and monk um, illustrated him in a different way how or illustrate um, illustrated the nature of stickiness like of desire when desire is present how that sticks how it's difficult to get the mind off that object of desire and so to illustrate he put his hands together like this holding and then with very lively movements he went like this trying to pull apart the hands and he went on and on and on and on <laughs> and the nun who had to translate for the teacher after some time she said Bante, I think it's enough <laughs> But anyway, it made a very strong impression on my friend's mind. And as he showed it to me in, uh, in a similar way, it also left a strong impression on my mind. So the, the stickiness of desire and attachment. Something else we can notice when we carefully observe our desire, it's this strong pull to act on the desire. You know, to act it out in order to get the satisfaction, in order to get the sensual gratification. You know, the desire for food, maybe for the chocolate on the table, the dessert, maybe strong desire and immediately uh, the desire causes the respective actions to take the chocolate and then eat it. Or, you know, we walk uh, in town and then we see a nice pair of shoes in a shoe shop and desire arises and after 10 minutes we notice we walk out of the shop with a bag of the new shoes. <laughs> so one way to avoid the pitfall of engaging in sensual pleasures, to act on the desire for sensual pleasures, that would be to live an extremely ascetic life you know, to live in a very remote area, to live in a simple rustic hut, to have no electricity, to have no running water, to only have a very thin bamboo mat uh, for sleeping on, just eating one meal a day and having almost no possessions. So here I want to share the story of an ascetic who possessed nothing except the robes he was wearing and the arms bowl he had. And his arms bowl consisted of a hollow empty gourd. And this ascetic was teaching non-attachment. And he had become quite famous and so the king heard about that ascetic. And as the king was spiritually inclined, he, he got this ascetic to be called to the palace. And he appointed this ascetic as his teacher. So every afternoon, the ascetic and the king, they would go out into the royal gardens into a faraway corner where the king would listen to the teachings of this ascetic. And again and again this ascetic made the point 
that you know happiness would arise through non-attachment, not being attached to anything. And so one day, as they were sitting in that faraway corner in the royal garden, a servant came running and then shouting, Oh, King, Her Majesty, His Majesty, please come to the palace, there is a fire, come and give orders. But the king looked up to the servant and calmly said, Don't you see, I'm here uh, getting teachings from my great teacher. Don't bother me, you know, you go back and you give orders and say what is necessary. But then, the ascetic, however, he immediately jumped up and exclaimed, What do you say? The palace is on fire? I forgot my arms bowl in the palace. (laughs) (laughs) So the point is not so much about how little or how many possessions we have, but how we relate to these possessions. So how we relate to material possessions, but also how we relate to our body, to our mind. You know, in my case, I can say I, ha- uh, I don't have a house, I don't have a car, I don't have a dog, but I would say um, I have a suitcase, I have a jacket, I have notes, these are my notes. So whenever we use the terms I or me, my, mine, then this is often an expression that includes attachment, gross or subtle. I think we are all familiar with the statement of the Buddha that nothing can be regarded to be I me or mine. And in regard to form or material things, which includes our body and material possessions, the Buddha had said, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all form should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And so then the Buddha went on to say the same things in regard to the other aggregates, the aggregates of feeling, aggregate of perception, the aggregate of consciousness, and the aggregate of mental formations. Uh, Sorry. Yes. So if these things, like my material possessions, my body, my mind, are not mine, to whom do they belong? Actually, this question is based on the wrong assumption that there is something or somebody who possesses these things, somebody who has ownership. But the question to ask is, how do things come into being? And the Buddha uh, stated very clearly, when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that comes not to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. 
So this is basically the universe, universal formula of dependent origination. It clearly states that there are things and that things do arise and they do pass away. But nobody can possess these things. Nobody has absolute ownership over these things. Because all these things, they come into existence and they go out of existence according to causes and conditions and not according to our desires, uh, wishes and attachments. So it's not wrong to have things, material possessions, and to use things, material possessions, but we should, do, we should do so without clinging and without attachment. The king seemed to have learned his lesson very well, outdoing his teacher, the ascetic. Although the king lived in great luxury, and had his every wish fulfilled, he didn't seem to have any attachments to these things. So he had been able to abandon the craving for and the attachment to these things. And therefore, his mind was not disturbed by the news that the palace was on fire. Many years ago, a friend of mine came to Burma. I had already been there for a little while. And this friend of mine planned to stay a couple of days in Yangon before coming to the meditation center. After she had arrived, she called the center and said that she had arrived, but not her luggage, saying that the next day she would need it she would need to go back to the airport and see whether her luggage had arrived or not. She also asked me to convey her greetings to the Sayadaw and tell him that she would come in a day or two, hopefully then with her luggage. So when I told Sayadaw, uh, he simply said, well, never mind in regard to the luggage. When she was born, she didn't bring any luggage either. <laughs> and likewise, we have to leave behind all our luggage when we die. We come with nothing and we go with nothing. But during our life, we carry around so much baggage, so much luggage. We get attached to things, to persons, to animals, and to situations, and we carry this around. Isn't this crazy? Aren't we insane? Actually, in the Abhidhamma, it says, all worldlings are insane or all worldlings are mentally deranged. <laughs> and Sayato Upandita, on one of his visits to the United States, uh, he said this, in this country, the USA, there are lots of sensual pleasures freely available. People are pulled down by the gravity of sensual pleasures. Even with a slight gravitational pull, they dive into sensual pleasures. Isn't that true? Yes. So instead of falling prey to these uncountable temptations, we have to apply an antidote. 
and as you might guess, this antidote is mindfulness, awareness. So we need to become increasingly aware what we are doing, what we are speaking, and most importantly, to become increasingly aware what we are thinking. And so, by doing so, the first step is to become aware of the habitual patterns that run our mind, run our lives. So much what we do, say and think happens on automatic pilot. And this discovery can actually also be quite shocking and painful. So in regard to this automatic behavior, automatic reactions we do and we often are not aware of them. For example, many years ago when I was a nun, I liked to, or I, I, I became aware that I would touch my uh, head with my hands and uh, move it over uh, my head. You know, usually after shaving my head after three, four days, the hair had grown just enough that it felt like um, like velvet, like a little carpet of velvet. Mm-hmm. And a very nice, very pleasant uh, sensation. And so then, you know, becoming more mindful, becoming more aware, I started to notice that my hand was up here. And just getting this gratification, a nice feeling. But once I became aware of this, it doesn't mean that this automatic or habitual behavior uh, stopped from one day to another. No, it happened again and again, but I became more often aware of it, uh, faster, you know, when my head touched the my hand touched the head, you know, then what it was in that moment that I became aware. And later on it was when I started to lift my hand. Ah, wanting this sensual gratification, nice touching sensation. So that's the first step, becoming aware of these habitual patterns. Then the second step is to recognize the underlying mental state that accompanies that action or that triggers that action. And it always boils boils down to desire, wanting, craving or attachment. You know, it's wanting this or not wanting that craving for more of this, or craving to get away from that. Attachment to thoughts, to the body, to fantasies, to emotions, attachment to opinions and views. This is why it is so important to watch and to observe this pulling force of wanting or desire can actually be quite interesting to be simply aware of and observe this pull, this um, strong force uh, behind the craving. And it really doesn't matter what the mind is craving for. We do not need to pay much attention to the object of craving. So the craving, the desire itself, is the object of our mindfulness. At one stage in my meditation practice, I realized that strong compulsive force of thoughts, I realized it in this way, 
although I became aware that the thought thought process was going on and although I wanted to let go of that thought I simply couldn't the attachment to the thought and its obsessing force were so strong that I first had to think the thought to its end only when the thought had been thought was the mind kind enough to let go of it And so, you know, in these moments, I really came to clearly see and understand this uh, strong force um, that lies in attachment, in craving, (coughs) desire. (coughs) It's really essential (coughs) to see and to understand the nature of wanting, desire, and attachment. And the deeper the understanding is, the stronger then becomes the wish to reduce the attachment or the desire and to finally abandon it because we then so clearly see how much dissatisfaction, how much suffering, how much misery it actually uh, creates. So to be mindful of desire or attachment and to observe it in order to understand its nature, that's the first and most important way of dealing with desire, craving, wanting or attachment. However, sometimes we get completely stuck in our desire or attachment or we get completely carried away. Or sometimes we get really sucked into the desire and then we react unskillfully. And this then in turn only pulls us further down into negativity. So to avoid this or to pull the emergency brake There are a few approaches that can be helpful and I will present them in two groups. And these approaches, you know, they can be applied in meditation practice but they also can be very helpful in our day-to-day life when faced with uh, desire, craving or attachment. So the first group to deal with uh, anger attachment is to use reflections that help reduce wanting desire or attachment. And then the second approach to deal with (coughs) desire attachment is to divert the mind from the object of desire. So let's start with the first group, the reflections that help reduce desire, craving or attachment. And these reflections can be done uh, on a regular basis, could be done at the beginning of the day or uh, they could be done at the beginning of a sitting meditation or a walking meditation or whenever they are needed or whenever it fits into the daily schedule. (coughs) So the first of these reflections is the reflection on impermanence. The Buddha had said, all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. As you know, impermanence is one of the three general characteristics characteristic that can be found in everything that is conditioned. So, you know, material things are impermanent, our body is impermanent, the mind is impermanent. 
they do not last forever, they are subject to change and alteration. They are not everlasting entities. So to reflect that whatever material possessions there are, they are impermanent, they do not last forever. Likewise, our body will not last forever. Likewise, the mind and phenomena arising in the mind will not last either. They are just momentary uh, events coming and going. So in regard to <coughs> material possessions, material things, seeing them as impermanent. Achan Cha, this great Thai a meditation teacher, he would look at the new glass or a new cup that was offered to him and see it already broken. But then he could use it as long as it was not yet broken. But then it did not disturb his mind when the glass or the cup would eventually break. So to reflect on the impermanent nature uh, of our material possessions in particular is a powerful, powerful antidote to desire, craving and attachment. And as I said, we can extend this reflection on to our body, to our mind, and even to our life. You know, our life is impermanent. We will die. So that then would be reflection on death. So when we repeatedly reflect on the fact that we have to part from all that is dear to us, then the mind gradually starts to loosen <coughs> its grip on these things. And then it starts to see the futility of clinging to something that we actually cannot own in an absolute way. The futility of clinging to something that eventually will disappear, will break, will no longer be around. Then a reflection that helps reduce desire in regard to the body is the reflection on the non-beauty of the body. You know, this is what I introduced this morning. The attachment to our body is usually quite strong. This physical mass of flesh, of bones, pus, blood, urine, and so on, is the object of so much clinging, so much attachment. And I think this is so because the body is a major part of our identity, of our identification of who we are. And so a lot of time, a lot of uh, energy, and a lot of money as well, is invested in our body. We bathe it, we feed it, we empty our bladder <coughs> and bowels, we comb our hair, we nicely shape our fingernails, we paint and decorate the face, we take out this body for walks, we take it to the gym, we treat it with needles, with massages, with balms, and so on. So, some of this is absolutely necessary. It's life-sustaining. But some of this is completely unnecessary. A waste of time, money and energy. Even if you would manage to have your body looking young, fit and trendy at the age of 85, <laughs> you finally have to leave it behind. And then it will 
uh, either become rotten within a short time or turn into ashes in no time. So if there were something inherently beautiful in the body, then it would need to stay like that, you know, all the time. But the fact is, there is not such an inherently beautiful thing in the body that stays beautiful all the time. You know, our beautiful hair is no longer so beautiful after not washing it for a week or two weeks, not to speak of not washing it for a month. Many years ago, when I was staying at the forest center in Mobi, Saito Ujanaka's forest monastery, a very dear friend of mine and Mimi came to the center to practice meditation and she wanted to ordain as a temporary nun. Now this friend had had long blonde hair and Mimi thought it was such a shame to shave off this beautiful blonde hair. In Burma, people usually don't have blonde hair, so there is no word for blonde hair, and so the way it is described, it's golden hair. And so Mimi thought, ah, what a shame that our friend was going to shave off her beautiful golden hair. And so then Mimi said, before I started to shave her head, that she was going to keep this golden hair forever. Okay, so uh, to shave somebody's head, it's helpful to put some soap or some shampoo into the hair, make it wet and rub it in onto the skull. So I did that and as it is usually done, two people stand in front of the prospect nun or monk holding a white towel and so then the hair that is shaved falls into the towel, is collected in the towel. And as I was shaving my friend's head, so these bundles of wet, soapy hair fell into the white towel. And more and more um, uh, soapy, wet bundles of hair collected there in the uh, towel. When I had finished shaving her head, a rather disgusting pile of uh, hair had collected in this white towel. And then I looked at Mimi and said, now it's yours, keep it for the rest of your life. (laughs) But now she had no more desire (laughs) to put it away and keep it. So then, as it is usually done, she took the towel and uh, threw the hair at at the root of a tree, giving it back to nature. So this reflection on the non-beauty of the body, this can be either done with the so-called journal ground contemplations, contemplating the various stages of um, uh, decomposing body. But as I said this morning, it's a bit difficult uh, to find a journal ground where we can see bodies, corpses decomposing. So the other reflection is the reflection on the 32 parts of the body. And this morning when I was mentioning these 32 parts, I asked you to to get a sense of these body parts, where they are uh, in your body. Now, I'll go through these 32 parts again, but now what you can do is close your eyes 
and then put that body part, um, you know, take it off from your body and put it on the ground before you, like the hair of the head. So imagine your hair of the head, you know, comes off by magic and then you make a little pile in front of you, in your mind's eye. Then the hair of the body, you know, take all this hair, put it in front of you, make little heaps of these uh, body parts. So I will go through them. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, fingernails, toenails, teeth, the skin, flesh, sinews, bones, the marrow, kidneys, the heart, the liver, the diaphragm, the spleen, the lungs, the intestines, the mesentery, Stomach, feces, the brain. And now for the liquid parts, you can imagine little balls where you put that liquid in. For the bile, phlegm. Pass, blood, the sweat, the fat, then tears, grease. saliva, nasal mucus, synovial fluid. And urine. So seeing these 32 little separate heaps in front of you, do you still identify them as me or my body? Most likely not. But as soon as these 32 parts are put together in a certain way and take the form of a human being, then uh, you identify again with that's me or my body. So you may open your eyes again. So doing this reflection repeatedly over a period of time can help reduce the attachment to our body. And with this reflection we also get a more realistic picture of what the body is and what it is made of. But this reflection should not diminish our appreciation of having a body should also not be that we neglect the care of the body. Now we will go to the second group of approaches to deal with difficult forms of desire or attachment. And so this is the approach of 
diverting the mind from the original object. And especially these approaches are particularly relevant for our day-to-day life. But of course, we also can apply them in our meditation practice. When the direct approach of being mindful of desire and attachment seems to be very challenging or fruitless. So the first uh, of these approaches is to change the object. So when the mind is pulled into an object by strong desire or attachment, then we can immediately change the object. You know, this uh, can apply to objects that are very difficult to deal with, as we know from uh, previous experiences. So then we simply drop this object and focus the mind on a different object. An object that usually causes um, a wholesome uh, response to arise. You know, it's like grabbing a piece of hot burning charcoal, you would immediately drop it, let go of it. And likewise, you simply drop that object, which you know has already uh, caused strong desire to arise or attachment, and you know it from previous experiences, and so then you consciously consciously focus the mind on another object, you know, an object that uh, is either neutral or an object that you know from experience uh, usually causes happiness or joy to arise. So dropping that object and then changing the mind, mind to a different object So this different object could be the experience of the breath, which is usually quite a neutral object. It could also be quite a distinct touch sensation in the body. Or it could be to change to metta meditation or any other of the Brahma-viharas. Or it could also be uh, the reflection on the attributes of the Buddha, Buddha Nusati. Then another way to deal with strong forms of desire, craving and attachment is to use a determination. So a strong desire can be countered by a strong resolve. You know, sometimes simply to resist the strong pull of desire might not be working, might not be enough, but a conscious resolve has a greater power and strength. You know, if there is a strong desire in regard to, can be in regard to food, or to close, or looking around. So we can make a strong determination to not engage in this activity uh, for a certain period of time. So you know, the determination could be not to look around for half an hour, or not to look around for the duration of one walking meditation. Or it could be not to look around when walking for the med- from the meditation hall up to the dining hall. Or it could be not to look around for half a day or for a whole day. Or in regard to food, you know, if you know this strong desire and you can make a resolve to maybe only have one cup of tea or coffee a day instead of the three or four. Or 
strong um, a determination not to go for the sweets at lunch, whatever it is. So once we have made this strong resolve and keep to it, then we may notice that the desire for another cup of coffee or the desire for the dessert dissolves much quicker or that it arises less frequently. Because we have made this heartfelt and strong resolve, then there is no point in internally arguing. And so the mind lets go of the desire more easily, more quickly. Then another approach, the approach of avoiding. Sometimes our desire, our craving, our attachment to something is triggered by a certain object or a certain person or a certain situation. If it has become obvious that a particular object, let's say, triggers desire each time we see it, then we simply can try to avoid the contact with that object. So try to avoid it, not go near there, make a big detour. Um, You know, for example, if the smell from the kitchen always triggers strong fantasies around food, then it's best not to do the walking meditation near the kitchen, but uh, go to a place that is far away from the kitchen so that you uh, won't be bothered by the smells, so to avoid uh, that. Or, you know, an example from uh, everyday life, if you cannot resist the temptation of the nice ice cream that they sell on the corner of Craving Street and Indulgence Avenue, then simply miss that. Um, Do not go to that place in town. (laughs) Avoid it. So as you have seen, nothing can be called me, mine, or belonging to a me, to a self. However, based on a deeply rooted delusion, we regard material objects, the body and the mind as me, mine, I, or as belonging to the I, belonging to the self. And with this notion of me or mine, we almost immediately become attached to all sorts of things, animate and inanimate. We we desire possessions, we crave for sensual pleasures, or we cling to blissful mental states, or we want things to be different. So instead of craving for things, instead of getting attached uh, to things, we need to abandon the very desire, to abandon the craving, the attachment. The problem is not caused by the material possessions or by any other person, but by our deluded attitude to these things, to these objects. Which means, as long as desire, craving, attachment is present in the mind, we can never uh, find that true peace and happiness that we so dearly want. So in this talk, I have pointed out a few ways 
how we can deal with these various kinds of desire, clinging, or attachment. I will end this talk with a quote from the Buddha. Very short and to the point. He said, Nothing whatsoever is worth to be clung to. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.